This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Adi Kar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. I begin this sermon at my father's desk sitting in the quiet of the house that for the past week has overflowed with laughter and love, with babka and broken sugar cookies, and which the week before that was filled with song and silence and babka and broken sugar cookies. Everyone has left. I feel compelled by an inexplicable force to sit in my father's chair, even though this runs counter to the halakha We're supposed to show respect to our parents by leaving their seats empty, both in life and also in death. You wouldn't dare sit on the king's throne or the president's chair in the Oval Office, so don't disrespect your parent by sitting in his chair. All of us quietly intuited this over the course of the week, even those among us who didn't yet know the law avoided his chair at the dining room table unless and until there were no other seats available. Once, unknowing, one of the little ones sat in this office seat that I'm now in, and my girls, a few years older, rebuked them, get out of Pop's chair. But I want to sit here. I want to feel the leather cushion that enfolded him every day, especially as he grew increasingly unsteady on his feet, and he would land with a gentle, grateful thud into the welcoming embrace of this seat. His reading glasses now rest just so against the pack of tissues to the right. I think of the endless hours that my father spent here in the past 15 years since he and my mother moved west, pondering the most advantageous ways to give and invest and save, thinking about how to delight and support and surprise his children and grandchildren and my mom. I think of the emails that my father would open every day on this desktop, his portal to the world left behind when they moved here. Jokes from old college buddies and long missives from his brother and desperate fundraising attempts from his blessedly former political party, along with a mountain of Ikar emails that somehow always got one detail completely wrong, which believe me, my team always heard about. I look at the piles of unopened mail on his desk, remembering how just a couple of weeks ago, I found my father sitting in this chair, his hand trembling as he struggled to open an envelope as if its contents held the answers to the great mysteries of the universe, when in fact all it was was a solicitation from the American Heart Association. I remember him sitting here when Sammy and I came to the house a couple of months ago And he asked her to help him undo the clip of his fanny pack after his fingers had lost all agility. And I remember how much it broke him when he realized just how profoundly his body had betrayed him. In this chair, I can see him. I can smell the traces of his aftershave. I can almost touch him. He's so close to me that the line between death and life is so thin that for a moment, I'm certain it's an illusion. And we are all here and also there, in this world and also the next, all at the same time. And the only question is whether or not we have the courage to admit that that's the case. 
In Shiva, the community is charged with creating a container to hold the grief of the Avalim, of the mourners, as we begin the sacred work of recovery, trying to piece together the complexity and the mystery and sometimes the majesty of our loved ones' lives. This work is kind of a holy collective excavation project as we try through storytelling and looking at photos and honest recounting to bring back into focus what came before the end, whether the end came abruptly and tragically or after a prolonged decline. What we've experienced most recently obviously leaves the strongest impression and it takes a dedicated effort to dig beyond the dramatic and sometimes traumatic end in order to rediscover the essence of a person. Instinctively, we have to work our way backward, which often means starting with repeated retellings of the end in all of its detail. Maybe you've experienced this yourself. I've witnessed many Avalium tell and retell where they were when they received the phone call, when the illness took a turn, what the last weeks and final moments of their loved ones' lives were like. This is part of the normal processing of traumatic events. Through repetition and through storytelling, as painful as it is, we assimilate new information and we start to move closer to acceptance. It's as if in order to make sense of a loved one's life, we first have to try to make sense of their death. Only then are we able to move back in time, to remember, to reconstruct, to reimagine a person. If we let them, friends and family and therapists, rabbis, community can be helpful in this process. But now, Sitting in my father's chair after the end of Shiva, I find myself drawn once again to the end, to the vastness of the experience, to the holiness of it. I'm still working my way through the tangle of inputs, trying to gather sacred hints that will help explain the complex puzzle of life and death that will help me make meaning from the overwhelming mix of gratitude and sadness that I'm feeling. Ushering my father through his final days felt to us to be at once the most singular and also most universal human experience when life unfolds as it should, according to the natural order of things. My father lived 86 full years, full of laughter and love, full of joy and angst, illness and recovery and illness again, this was not a catastrophic loss, but a sad and beautiful and blessed one. And as Rosh Hashanah this day cuts short our shloshim, the first 30 and most intense days of mourning, I find myself on these holy days needing to think and speak with you, my beloved community, about the end, about the way that we die and what it says about who we are and what really matters most. So let's talk about the end. I've shared with some of you the chance stroke of blessing that landed me by the side of my beloved grandma Millie the last days of her life several years ago. I'd flown down to Florida after giving a talk in New York and shortly after I arrived, my grandma took a terrible fall and she broke her hip. The doctors insisted that she needed surgery despite my many protests. She's 98 years old, I said. Is surgery really our only option? 
She came through the surgery, but she was terribly weak. I spent the next two days holding her hand in the hospital, placing droplets of water on her dry lips, simultaneously mortified and completely awed by her charming and totally inappropriate flirtations with the doctors. <laughs> she was really herself until the very end. But she was deteriorating quickly. But the nurses and the caregivers insisted on reassuring her all along. Don't worry, Mrs. Gordon, they said. You will be playing bridge again in no time. I knew that the caregivers were only trying to comfort her, but I wanted to scream. She is dying. Can't we just be honest with her? So here's the humbling irony. As a rabbi, it's essentially my job to help people confront their mortality so that we can live more meaningfully and purposefully with whatever time we have. And this is a message that you've heard me preach many, many times with great urgency, and it is, in fact, the central theme of these holy days. And yet, here I was, simultaneously aggrieved by the caregiver's failure to be honest with my grandma and absolutely terrified to do so myself. And Dr. Atul Gawande once shared the story of a palliative care specialist named Dr. Susan Block, who trains doctors to have honest conversations with patients about end-of-life decisions and care. Block has guided thousands of people through the hardest conversations. What are you living for? How do you want to spend whatever time you have left? But then Block's father, a University of California Berkeley professor, was diagnosed with a mass growing on his spinal cord. She flew out to see her father the night before his surgery, and they sat together, and they chatted, and then she said goodnight. She was driving away on the Bay Bridge when she realized that she, an expert in end-of-life conversations and care, had avoided talking to her own father about what really mattered to him. In desperation, she turned the car around and drove back to the hospital. I know this isn't even possible, but I imagined a dramatic U-turn on the Bay Bridge. <laughs> Block races back up to her father's hospital room, and breathlessly, she asks him how much he's willing to go through to have a shot at staying alive, and what level of being alive would be toler tolerable to him. Her father told her that as long as he could eat chocolate ice cream and watch football on TV, he would be willing to go through a lot of pain, but he would want to live. And she was absolutely astonished, not by the ice cream part, but by the football part. In her memory, she had never seen him watch a single game. And yet she learned so much just by asking and listening. But we, we run away from those conversations. Instead, we engage in a kind of collective magical thinking. If we don't talk about it, maybe it won't be real. And then rather than confront the precariousness and the preciousness of life, we avoid and we evade. But death is part of life. It's normal. It happens to every single being. The dying person, deprived of the opportunity to speak honestly about what's happening, is not only denied agency in the end, but is also denied our full presence as they go through what, for many, is the scariest experience of their lives. And it's not only they, the dying, who lose in a culture that pathologizes death. We who live also lose 
Because death denial keeps us from fully engaging life. If we really knew how close we were to the edge, would we waste so much time with such stupid, meaningless distractions? And even more concretely, death denial creates a spiritual schism between the bereaved, those who are forced to confront the reality of loss, and the community, precisely when community is needed the most. My grandma died three days after her fall. It was years ago now, but I still wish that I had taken a U-turn on the Bay Bridge. I wish I had told her the truth about where this was heading, given her a chance to decide what her final hours might look like, to narrate her own closing chapter in truth rather than a facade of normalcy. Instead, I joined the chorus of false hope. My fear got in the way of my love. When my father was diagnosed with an advanced aggressive Parkinson's three years ago, I was determined not to make the same mistake again. So instead, I sat down with him when he was still fully possessing his faculties, and I took a deep breath, and I said, Dad, I hope you live a long life, but this disease is a beast. It creeps through the system, and at some point, it will deny you the ability to live independently and to communicate fully. I know this is hard, but I have to ask you now, while you're still fully here, what matters most to you? He was not offended. To my surprise, he answered me immediately, as if he too had been quietly considering this all along. He told me two things, which I share with you now with my family's permission. One, he wanted to be at home, if at all possible. And two, he wanted to bring joy to my mother, his wife of more than 50 years. The ice cream part was implied for my father, always. <laughs> this gave us some really important data points. As hard as it would be for us to care for him at home, we knew we had to do whatever we could to provide it. That would require advanced planning, saving money, hiring caregivers, installing bars and ramps and more. And he wanted not only to stay close to my mother, but to be able to give her joy. That meant we had to do everything in our power to help him hold on to his agency, his cognition, and his ability. I asked him this question a couple of years ago, and then I checked back literally every month since then, even up to a week before his death. Yes, those remained for him the two most important things. Consistent with our broader culture, our healthcare system rooted in death denial is biased toward longevity, not quality of life. In the words of palliative care expert B.J. Miller, it is designed to center diseases, not the people living with and dying from those diseases. That's how we end up with these costly, unnecessary, and sometimes painful medical interventions to prolong life rather than thoughtful, creative interventions to help a person live and die with some measure of agency and dignity. Desperate final hours are spent in the ER fighting for a bed rather than beside the bed of our loved ones, singing and praying and whispering words of love and care. Two weeks before my father died, an infection coursed through his body. He, who had been standing here on Shabbat morning just two days earlier and actually came up for an aliyah, was now spiking a fever 
and had become so weak that he could barely lift his head. After several sleepless and traumatic nights for all of us in the hospital, he miraculously stabilized and it became clear that they needed the bed for patients with more acute illness. While we remained concerned, we nevertheless gratefully returned home and we began to plot gentle therapeutic interventions. Maybe we had dodged a bullet. But that optimism was short-lived. It was clear to me that my father was dying. His systems were shutting down and he was suffering. The Midrash tells us that when it was time for Aaron to die, God longed to give Aaron the chance to prepare so that he could die on his own terms, but did not have the courage to share the sad news. God did not have the courage to share the sad news with Aaron. So instead, God turned to Moses and said, do me a favor and tell Aaron that he's gonna die. I'm too ashamed to do it myself. Moses had no choice but to comply. The Midrash says he rose early in the morning and he went to Aaron and as artfully and sensitively and lovingly as he could, one brother told the other that the end was near. Aaron's body felt so weak as he confronted for the first time the truth of his mortality. But in a final act of agency, Aaron prepared himself for death until a fog enveloped him and the Shekhinah, the divine presence, descended and kissed him and he gently passed from this world. At one point, now back home, as my father's condition worsened, we desperately called the nurse to ask for advice. And we were told, if you're really concerned, call 911 and take him back to Cedars. In a death-denying healthcare system, that really is the only answer. As Shimon Perez famously said, if all you have is a hammer, you see the whole world as a nail. But we were clear that there would be no more ambulances and no more hospitals, even as we knew that choosing not to go meant saying the quiet part out loud. We had to help him transition from this world with love. The move to hospice care was completely transformative. As Dev and Michael and my mom and I stood with my father at the precipice of life and death, I thought of Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, the great sage, who suffered 13 years from scurvy and kidney stones in pain and anguish. The Talmud invites us right into his final moments. Rabbi Yehuda is on his deathbed. He's suffering, he's dying, but the rabbis, his colleagues, his students, they can't bear to lose him. Caught in the grips of their own death denial, they decree that anyone who even dares to suggest Rebbe is dying will be stabbed with a sword. That's how much they don't want to confront the reality of this imminent loss. They fast, they pray fervently for God's mercy. Please let him live. They will not allow this great man to part from them. Now, Rebbe also has by his side a caregiver, and she too wants Rebbe to live. She prays, we're not ready to lose him. Just give us a little more time, God. But she is incredibly perceptive, and she perceives that Rabbi Yehuda Nasi is being tugged between two realities. The upper realms and the lower realms are competing for his soul. Now, by Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi's side, she starts to pay very close attention 
and she witnesses his profound suffering. Specifically, the Talmud tells us that the caregiver sees how it pains him to go to the bathroom. She sees the exhaustion and the indignity, and it's absolutely wrenching. So again, she prays, but this time with a different intention. May it be your will, she says, that Rabbi Yehuda Nasi is able to transition from this world in peace. But the rabbis, the rabbis are relentless. They will not let him go. And their grasp on his soul, their refusal to give him permission to die is keeping Rebbe suspended in this anguished limbo. So she, the caregiver, takes matters into her own hands. Climbing to the rooftop, she grabs hold of a kuza, a ceramic jug, and she thrusts it to the ground. The sound of broken pottery distracts the rabbis for just a brief moment. And as they gaze at the shards on the ground, Rebbe Yehuda Hanasi's soul ascends to the heavens. He has died. He's finally, finally at peace. I love that the rabbi's profound misunderstanding of what's actually needed, their selfish attempts to hold their beloved teacher in this world, even when it was time to go, is recorded and preserved for all time by the rabbis. In the rabbinic literature, I love that it is his unnamed caregiver, a woman, who truly understands what only God had known. That the mercy that Rabbi Yehuda Nasi really needed was not prolonged life, but compassionate death. She only knew this by standing in the breach, by paying attention not to what she needed, but to what Rebbe's soul needed. In a quiet moment, I shared the story with my mother. It gave her comfort as we shifted our own thinking and our prayers, as we reoriented from medical interventions in the service of death avoidance to natural death to compassionate death. This gave us permission to hold my father with love and to grant him release rather than jealously scramble to hold on to every last second. The first thing that the hospice nurse told us embodies the Torah of compassionate end-of-life care. Take off the oximeter, she said, referring to the mechanism that we were checking incessantly to gauge his oxygen and his pulse. Don't look at the numbers. Look at the person. In compassionate care, we have two priorities. First, we strive to create the conditions for physical comfort. We work to reduce suffering. We make space for what Dr. Miller calls primal sensorial delights. In our case, my father was permitted a reunion with his beloved ice cream, which had been deemed too dangerous to his long-term health, but was truly pointless to deny him now. Our goal, the hospice team, is no longer nutrition or long-term health, it's sensory gratification. If it makes him happy, give it to him. It made him very happy. And second, we create the conditions for spiritual comfort. Here our Jewish tradition meets and marries the hospice toolkit. About a decade ago, I met an incredible doctor named Ira Bayak, another of the leading voices in hospice and palliative care. After traversing the final chapter with thousands of dying people and their families, he identified what he calls the four things that matter most. I've shared this with many of you over the course of the years. Please forgive me. I forgive you, thank you, and I love you. Of course, Bayak explains that 
The four things apply all the time, not only when death is imminent, but I realize that they happen to embody the very essence of our somewhat impenetrable deathbed vidui, or confessional, the final words that our traditional liturgy guides us to impart before we die, or on behalf of the dying. The goal is grace, wonder, spiritual connection, soul preparedness. So some years ago, I attempted a new liturgy, simple and accessible, that interweaves Biox wisdom with our ancient Jewish wisdom that gives us words when there are no words. Many of you have said these words now at the bedside of beloveds. This liturgy is intended to support us in overcoming the deeply embedded cultural urge to hide, to deny, to repress, and instead it helps us embrace our vulnerability. It reminds us that for all that we can't control, we can choose forgiveness, we can thank, and we can love. This liturgy, which our family said over and over again for the full week that my father was in hospice care, allowed us to embrace those final moments with tender, open hearts. I say all of this knowing that even thinking about ending well is a privilege. There are sudden losses that tear us from our loved ones with no choice and no mercy. And I'm deeply humbled by the unthinkable tragedies that some people in this room have had to endure. I also know that geographical and emotional distance also sometimes preclude the possibility of sacred accompaniment. And of course, just last week, we witnessed the convulsions of human heartache rippling from Morocco and from Libya when entire worlds were turned upside down with no glimmer of agency or grace, no talk of ending well. Even still, there is a movement to rethink and ultimately redesign how we talk about death and how we die. What does it mean to bring honesty and agency into the death experience when we're able? To shift from a medical mindset to a compassion mindset. To talk about and to live by what truly matters most. And these are questions that I think we all must take very seriously. In his dying days, we sat quiet, vigil in my parents' house. And I had three books in my hands, one to review the halachot of death and mourning, one to contemplate the ancient wisdom of consolation from Michael Ignatieff, and one the stunning poetic memoir of Elizabeth Alexander, written after the sudden and tragic death of her beloved just four days after his 50th birthday. Hour to hour, I carried these three books with me wherever I went. And I have already told you that I'm a person who listens to mindfulness podcasts on time and a half. I am always accepting inputs. I'm trying to learn as much as I can, as fast as I can, especially before the holidays, when the heart and mind are most fertile. But as the hours passed, I could not bring myself to open any of the books anymore. Instead, on his last day, as Shabbat drew to a close, I took my shift alone by his side, and I leaned into the wisdom of John Tarrant, a psychotherapist and Zen Buddhist teacher, who writes that attention is the most basic form of love. Through it, we bless and we are blessed. Attention is the most basic form of love. So I just sat there, holding his hand and watching 
And I found that there was nothing in the world that mattered more to me than my father's breath. I took note of every different kind of breath, the short, quick, panicked breaths, the deep, agonizing, breathless breaths, the uneven breaths that seemed out of sequence altogether, three quick breaths in a row, followed by 18 or 19 seconds, an eternity with no breath at all. And in those sacred moments, it was clear that there truly was no greater gift that I could give my father, nothing that I could do to thank him or repay him for a lifetime of love and kindness and protection and worry and plotting and strategizing and endless care than to simply give him my fullest attention. And so that is exactly what I did for hours. According to the Jewish tradition, when someone's dying, we open up a window. This is a signal to the soul that there's a way out, that we're granting our release when the time comes. In that room, we opened a window and a sliding door, but to honor my father's privacy, we closed the blinds over the door. And at one time, in that timeless bedside vigil, that deep presence, a gentle breeze blew into the room and billowed the blinds. And at that very same moment, the small reading light just above his head flickered. And just then, he, who had been completely non-responsive for two days, squeezed my hand with all his might. And I knew exactly what was happening. Like Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, the upper realms and the lower realms were competing for Rick Browse. His soul was ready to leave his body this body that had served him well for so many years, but in the last few years had proven unfit for his giant spirit. His soul was ready to go, but he remained so tethered to this world that he was pulling back, pulling back, just another day with mom, just another moment with the grandkids. It was a gentle, extended liminality. He was fully and completely between worlds. Just like the Sabbath itself. It was no longer day, but it was not yet night. He was here and he was there all at once. The rest of the family came into the room and we recited the Vidui once again, singing together the words that we will repeat next week on Yom Kippur. Please forgive, please forgive, we said. I forgive you, thank you, and with love we release you. And moments later, as the sky blackened, we sang Havdalah by the bedside. We bless you, God, for distinguishing between light and dark and holy and mundane, between life and death. And then my father, my beautiful, brilliant, strong, and certain father, breathed his last breath, and he went gently into the night. I will remember for the rest of my life the feeling of sitting on the grass by the open gravesite beside my mother and my sister and brother, by David and Eva, Sammy and Levi, and all my nieces and nephews, brother and sister-in-law, and singing, El Nora Alila, and looking up and witnessing this community place earth on my father's coffin 
with love. This community showed my family the full force of its love at the funeral, at Shiva and beyond. And I will never forget it. You blessed us with your presence and your care. Some of you were with us on the last night of Shiva. I shared a story from my first year of rabbinical school. When we spent weeks studying this complex machloket, a dispute in the Talmud, only for it to end abruptly and unsatisfyingly with one word, teku. Teku means that the question remains unanswered. There's no clear conclusion to this dispute, as some say it's not only unresolved, but it may be unresolvable. My Chavruta was a second career rabbinical student. He called himself a recovering attorney. He was enraged. He slammed the book on the table. And I knew in that moment that this would infuriate my father too, the pragmatist that he was. So I picked up the phone and I called him to share, chiding him a little bit that I had chosen a path that would lead me on a lifelong inquiry with no clear resolution ever. And it did drive him nuts. <laughs> but it absolutely delighted me. I loved and I love the idea of a conversation that is not yet over, that may never end. Some of you have shared with me that you speak with your deceased parents or spouse or children every single day. Some of you still fight with your loved ones who've died. Some of you ask for advice. Some of you share your deepest secrets, maybe even more so now that they're beyond this world. My father did not believe in any of that. He thought that that was magical thinking. Just because it might make us feel better does not make it true. But as I sat in my father's chair, my elbows resting on the armrest just so, I knew and I know now that that is my truth. That this story is not nearly over, it's just now gonna take a different form. And I, grateful for the grace afforded to us in being able to usher him to a compassionate end, will live the rest of my life knowing that there really is no end, just new ways to find him forever. Hi, it's Rabbi Brous again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe. And please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission, to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And I hope to see you, maybe even in person, sometime soon.